before we get uh, started today, um, as always, a, a quick reminder about the uh, gold sheets in the middle of your bulletin, especially for our guests, as there are some sermon notes there and also a devotional on the backside to use this week. Talk to the kids about losing things. Have you ever lost something that was really important to you? <laughs> Maybe the question is, what day didn't I lose something? <laughs> We all lose things that are important for us, and when that happens, those things are constantly on our mind. Far and away, the worst experience I've ever had with losing something happened about nine years ago. Um, I'd gotten up early in the morning, and um, earlier in the morning, and went over to check on our two-year-old at that time, who happened to be Ezra, he was two years old, and checked to see, you know, just to see how he was doing, and opened the, the door just a crack to look at him in his bed, and... He wasn't there. Now, I wasn't real nervous at that point because there had been other times where he had gotten up and kind of played with toys in his room. So I then slowly opened up the, in, the door all the way. He wasn't in his room playing with toys at all. But at this point, the heart starts beating a little bit faster, just a smidge. I called to Carrie, you know, did somehow Ezra, was he in our room last night? Did he come in our room last night? I didn't know about it type of thing. And he wasn't there. Carrie gets up. We both go downstairs. We hurry downstairs. We, he's not in the kitchen, not in the living room. He's not in the basement. He's not in the garage. The door is locked, front door. Maybe he went outside, though. I, I don't know how that would have happened, and the door is locked, but we went outside to check anyway. He is nowhere. At this point, we're past the point of being concerned, and we're, you know, kind of getting panicky, hearts beating even faster. We're thinking weird things, like, did someone come into our house and take him during the, I mean, where did he go? We're checking windows, we're yelling, Ezra. In between yells, we hear some noise coming from his room. We went up to his room, and he was sleeping in a, just started sleeping in a little toddler bed at that time. And the, the toddler bed, like most, are short and low to the ground. Short and so low to the ground, I didn't think anything or anyone could fit under it. But it just so happens that if you're two years old and you crank your head this way, <laughs> that it just allows for a two-year-old to fit under it. And he wasn't hiding from us. Somehow, we still don't know how it happened, he fell asleep under there. Either he, he slept walk or he was playing and then fell asleep. I mean, as you can imagine, this was one of the worst experiences that we've ever had, and I pray something like that never happens again. You know, have you ever thought about this? The way you react when something is lost can tell how important it is to you. Notice that? Um, you get in your car, and two pennies fall out of your pocket into the car seats. I bet you, especially if you're a guy, you're not going to look for it. <laughs> And if, you, if you're in a hurry, for sure you're not. On the other hand, if you get into your car and your, your wedding ring falls in between the seats, you're going to rip that car apart until you find it. If your, your two-year-old is lost, you're going to look for him. And could you imagine Carrie and I, you know, I find out Carrie's not in his bed and we decide, oh, you know, we could look. I'm kind of hungry. Let's have some pancakes and let's enjoy the morning. No kid to take care of. <laughs> I mean, that's just ridiculous. No loving parent would ever do that. Why? Because when something important to you is lost, 
you can't stop thinking about it. It doesn't even have to be a kid. We lost Keith a few months ago. I could not stop thinking about where those things were, right? When something important is lost, it preoccupies your mind. It preoccupies your heart. It's something you get passionate about. Now, this week we're closing out our series on going fishing. We've been talking about sharing Jesus with others. And um, this week as we close, we have a message before us that is both very, very comforting. I know it was for me, again, as I studied it. But also, I'm going to warn you, also very challenging. Both at the same time. Today's lesson, as we read from Luke 15, is going to give us an insight into the very heart of God. You want to know what God's passionate about? We're going to see. You want to know what God is preoccupied with? We're going to see. And here's the thing. After we are encouraged by it, I'm going to challenge you to say, the things that God's passionate about, if we follow him, those are the things that we should be passionate about too. The things that God is preoccupied with, those are the things that his church should be preoccupied with as well. A little bit of background before I read the words of Jesus. Let's imagine this is the first time you've ever come to church, you've never heard anything about Jesus or the Bible, okay? And it's the first time you hear about his life, it's the first time maybe you read through the Gospels. If that is the case, more than likely what you would think is that Jesus' time on this earth was mostly spent with churchy type people. I mean, he's the centerpiece of the church. He probably spent all his life in the temple because he's kind of the center of the church. The very interesting thing is, though, that God, Jesus, spent very little time in the temple. I mean, he went there, he fulfilled all the sacrificial laws and all of those things, but he didn't spend a lot of time there. And in fact, the people he spent most of the time with were kind of the opposite of religious. The opposite of churchy. And the churchy people, we know them in part as the Pharisees, they began to wonder about this. They began to wonder why Jesus was hanging out all the time with people who didn't go to church, or maybe it was, wasn't church leaders type of people. Even sometimes people who were known not for the good things they did, but for their sin. And this is the background with which we look at Luke chapter 15. In fact, it starts with a question that the Pharisees had for Jesus. Luke 15. Now, the tax collectors and sinners, we looked at what tax collectors were a few months ago. These, not, these were not just people who collected taxes. Uh, in spiritual sense, they were people who made a living off of being greedy and cheating. And sinners, in quotations, again, this being, you know, we are all sinners, but these types of people were people who were known for being sinful. Prostitutes, divorcees, you know, just lots of different public types of sinners. They were gathering around Jesus to hear him. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Basically, these church people are asking the question, What's up? Jesus, you're the, supposedly the sinless son of God. Why are you spending all of your time hanging out with people who aren't churchy and certainly aren't good? Now, let's be clear. 
the reason Jesus hung out with these people is not because he condoned sin. It wasn't Jesus saying, you know what, as long as I'm away from heaven for 33 years, might as well live it up. That's not the nature of our sinless Son of God. The reason he, hang out, he hung out with people at times, spoke with people who weren't churchy, who lived in their sin, so to speak, was because these were the people that needed to hear about Jesus and the forgiveness that he had to offer them. And so Jesus then goes on to teach these Pharisees um, with a parable or a story. In fact, there's three stories in a row. Guess what they're all about? People losing things. A lost sheep, a lost coin, and you know the last one the best. You know what it is? The lost son or the prodigal son. Yeah. We don't have time to look at all three. What we're going to do is look at the first one. Jesus continues in verse 3. Jesus then told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, let's have a party. Huh? Rejoice with me. I found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. So, in this story, um, Jesus doesn't use as an example a lost cell phone or a lost wedding ring. He uses something that would have been valuable to them, sheep. And one of the interesting things that is similar between sheep and wedding rings, you would not expect your wedding ring to find you, would you? If you want to find it, you got to look for it. Sheep are the same way. I've never been a shepherd of sheep, but what I've been told is that they're pretty dumb animals. There's a reason they need a shepherd leading them everywhere they go, is because that's exactly what they need. And so if a, a sheep got out of the sheep pen, there is no way that that sheep would ever find the shepherd. If the shepherd wants the sheep back in the flock, it is paramount upon the shepherd to do the looking. It's paramount upon the shepherd to be the one who finds the sheep. And in this example, while the shepherd had 99 others in the flock, notice what he didn't say. He didn't say, huh, what's one sheep? I got 99 others. Oh well, it's just one. Every sheep was important to a shepherd. Um, in fact, at this time, they got so um, well acquainted with their sheep because they were essentially were with them all the time that they were like children to shepherds. They, they weren't just an animal. It was much more than that. And so the shepherd goes out to look for it. Now, I think it's really important for us to not misunderstand this parable. Because I think the sinful nature in us, and, and I'm going to come back to this in just a couple minutes, when we especially read the last verse, there's more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who don't need to repent. A part of us is like, because we're the 99 right now, aren't we? A part of us is like, well, don't I count? 
There's all this rejoicing about this lost sheep that came back. What about me? I mean, isn't Jesus happy about me? And, and what I want you to learn from this story today, and again, I'm going to come back to it. This story, this parable, has nothing to do with how the shepherd feels about the 99. He loves the 99. It's just that the 99 are safe. The 99 are a part of the flock. Um, would you have thought, in my example earlier with Ezra, would you have thought, since I spent all morning, what it seemed like all morning, probably 15, 20 minutes, looking for Ezra, that in some way, because I focused all my attention on him, that at that very moment, I did not love Carrie because I wasn't thinking and focusing on her? I mean, you would never think that. The truth is, is when something is lost, the situation is critical. When something is lost, the situation is dangerous. When something is lost, especially something living, that something could be in trouble. So it's not that you don't love the found. It's that the lost take priority and our minds are preoccupied with the lost. Uh, I'm sure you've already connected some of the dots here. Let me make sure we're on the same page. In this story, Jesus is the shepherd, right? And Jesus isn't just satisfied with having 99 in the flock. He's not satisfied with having nine of the ten stuffed animals. He wants them all. He wants all to be a part of the flock. In fact, Paul writes this about God's heart. 1 Timothy 2, he wants all to be saved, all, and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Now, isn't that amazing? I think it is. That the creator of all things cares about me, cares about every single one of us, wants all of us to be a part of his flock. And again, it's not that the 99 aren't important, but he gives special attention. His heart and mind, the shepherd, is preoccupied with the lost because they're not found yet. Because they're not safe. Because they're in danger. Now, here's where things get quite personal. I am so glad that I have a savior that, that is that way. Because 34 years ago, I was lost. I was born away from the flock. And if God was just okay with 99 out of 100, 9 out of 10. Say, so you know what? I got plenty in the flock from 1977 to the past. I don't need any more. We got most of them. But the shepherd loved me. And although I was born sinful, inherited sin, was sinful, he pursued me. 
And not because there's anything good in me, not because I made a decision, but because of his good grace and my baptism, Jesus not only died for me, he saved me. A lost sheep, too dumb to find the shepherd. The shepherd found me. Now, why that should matter to you is because if you're a Christian, that's your story. And some of you came to faith as a child, just like me, at your baptism. And you've been a part of the flock ever since. Some of you, and only God sees these things, but some of us have come to faith as a child, maybe, and then we went through some really wandering years. And whether our faith went away altogether or not, we don't know, God does. We just know that we strayed. But God kept pursuing you. And that, for some of you, is why you're here today. Because God would not let go. Because Jesus wanted you to be a part of his flock forever. And you know where else you see the relentless shepherd? You see it. You see it in his death for us. That he had you in mind. And instead of a sheep being carried on his shoulders, he, he carried your sin on his shoulders. Why? Because Jesus is passionate about those who are lost. Because Jesus wants all to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Or, as Luke 19 says, the Son of Man came to seek and to save what is lost. That's some good news. Now, let me ask you. What are you passionate about? What gets you going? What do you throw parties for? A bonus? Those have been hard to come by, huh? For, all, for everyone, huh? Graduation parties, weddings, good grades. We don't throw parties, but we try to celebrate. Retirement? Those are all good things. But if you're wondering what to be passionate about, I would say the best way, place to look is to see what your Savior is passionate about. Because what God is passionate about, as we follow him, should also be what we're passionate about. Ephesians 5 says this, Be imitators of God as his dearly loved children. Now, here's why we need to give special attention to be passionate about the lost. You know what the number one idol is in uh, America? We've talked about this before. It's not a golden calf. It's not a Buddha. It's not the Vikings. It's not, uh, it might be the Packers. It's not the Vikings. It's not money even. It's not materialism. You know what it is? Yours is different than mine. Mine is spelled B-E-N. Yours is spelled however you spell your name. The biggest idol we struggle with every day is ourselves. Because every time, most of the time, when we put our wants ahead of God's wants and desires, 
It's just that. We've put ourselves first and God second. And this happens day after day, and thankfully we have a loving Savior, Jesus. But as we mature in faith, we want to be less self-focused and more focused on others. Now, this, uh, did you know that this self-centered, me-first attitude that we all struggle with, it's uh, not just a problem at work, it's not just a problem at home. Did you know it also shows itself at church? And in some ways, maybe we don't even always realize this. Um, but it is so easy to go about thinking about what our church a church should do or be about and look at it purely through the lens of self. Here are some examples. As a decision comes up or as a new topic comes up that needs to be addressed, the questions that, including me, we think about first are, how does this affect me? How does this affect my family? What do I think about this? What would be best for me? And while those things are not necessarily invalid to think about, at least in part, the honest truth is, is that at times there can be a tinge of selfishness in that type of thinking, pastors included. As a pastor, um, again, we are encouraged and we are tasked with helping all of us and you grow in your understanding of what Jesus has done for you but also to mature in our faith life and in our faith living. And I believe one of the biggest things that pastors should be tasked with in regard to this area is that for all of us, including pastors themselves, to be less inward-focused and to be more passionate about those who are not here. See, there are much, much better questions to ask when a decision comes up. And in part, it can be, well, how does this affect my family? It's impossible not to think about that. But there are better questions to ask. Pastor Steve and I ask these questions all the time. How does this affect the person who is not here yet? How does this decision affect those people that are lost? Not because they're more important than anyone here, more important than me, more important than you, but because they're in danger. And when something is in danger, when something is in trouble, when something is lost, it has to preoccupy our hearts and our minds. That's a lot to think about, isn't it? And I know part of you is pushing back at that. I'm not saying the people of our congregation or the pastors or the members, I'm not saying we're not important. Jesus didn't say that either. He's saying that the lost are in danger. And a mature, growing, spiritually church is one that thinks of the lost. Now, we're talking about fishing buddies. It's always better to go fishing with someone who's going to help you out. Or someone, it's just good to go fishing with people. You got two fishing buddies that I want you to know about. One is your Savior, Jesus. He's passionate about the lost. He's going to give you the strength, the words. The Holy Spirit will give you the, will produce the results. But the other buddy is this church. 
My promise to you is that if you have someone that you are wanting to learn about Jesus, that one of the things you can do to anything that we have here at Bethlehem is invite them and they will not feel like an outcast. Even if it's their first time at church, we think about these things and we do not get it right all the time. We screw up, we need to do things better, but we've thought about the lost because we're praying that we're a church of people who are passionate about those who need to hear about Jesus and that you can bring them here and they will hear just that. Um, in closing, the, uh, the thing that kind of hit my heart this week, one of the things in this section, um, was at the very end. And it was at the end of this, this story. It was at the end of actually all three stories. Um, back again to verse 7, it says, I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who don't need to repent. What did they throw parties for in heaven? Just one big party, maybe, huh? Kind of. Are there Super Bowl parties in heaven? Are there parties with wedding party? I mean, people don't get married in heaven. We're all married to Jesus. I don't even know how that all works. So. Are there parties? What do people have parties for in heaven? I don't know all the things, but I do know one thing. It's when the lost are found. That even the angels and God together rejoice over that. 34 years ago, there was a party. I don't know if God would say it that way. There was rejoicing in heaven because I was found. That happened the day that you were found. Isn't it a great thing to know that through you and me, and most important, through the Holy Spirit, we might have had a little part, a party in heaven, rejoicing in God with the angels. That's the great task and pleasure and privilege that the Lord has put before us all. Amen.